Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Season 2, Episode 41 of Drive-by Cinema. The podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. With me is my co-host Paul. Hiya. And I'm Rick. Welcome. Paul, episode 41, so not necessary to dress up this time. But you're wearing a tie and a collared shirt. <laughs> Why do I feel whether I'm giving a dressing up, but I'm given a dressing up or a dressing down, somehow there's a there's an element of dis- disparagingness to your remarks, Richard. No, it's very smart, Paul. Disparition. You know, celebrating the 40th is just a numerology, isn't it? The 41st is equally as auspicious. Yeah. It's only our cultural thing about tens that puts us in mind of these milestones. Now, it wasn't the Mayans or the Aztecs or the Incas. It wasn't the Aztecs because they lived... I don't know. Uh, one of them had that huge sort of... Welcome to History Hour with Paul. <laughs> with Ignorant Paul. <laughs> Impossible history with Ignorant Paul. Uh, one of them had the huge base 60 calendar, didn't they? That they that they worked out things that we hadn't worked out. Was that the Babylonians? Someone no, gave us... It, it was some 60. Central or Southern Americans people. Well, this is going back to 2012, isn't it? And the running out of the calendar, isn't it? Mm. Paul, I finally gave you your Secret Santa Christmas present. Can I just say, uh, uh, me and Richard, uh, listeners, uh, we met up for the first time in in, in Donkey's years, uh, physically, in Manchester, in the good city Manchester, on the good city Manchester, okay, uh, uh, to watch Alan Partridge. And it was jolly good fun. I dragged you to see Alan Partridge, even though you hate him. No, I don't hate him. I just find that, you know... You have some very trench-on criticisms he's of... A stand-up, he's a stand-up persona, and, you know, I think 30 years of one stand-up persona, people might say, is it not time for, you know, a little development? Yeah. But, but he has developed. That's the point I was yes, making. He's become a more likeable character. I mean, His when he doubt started, is more believable. He's got he's got a variety of political opinions now, ranging from left to right. Whereas before, he was like a very entrenched kind of sort of entrenched traditionalist, wasn't he? And he's not like that anymore. So, well, when he started, you know, he was a he was the sports correspondent. With oh, a, oh, so that's how he's created. Yeah, and a, a, he was a very clearly a takeoff of uh, Coleman. You know, who was. Always making gaffes, wasn't he, when he was commenting? Is that how he started out, not as David Icke or people like that? Well, obviously, David Icke fed into it, Dickie Davis, all of those. Of sports people, because I always thought he's a bit... Like, some of his a bit Alan Titchmarsh, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Now, he develops over time. And, but into... he's, he's quite a lot of Eamon Holmes kind of char- characteristics in him. There's a lot days. of Frank Boff in there as well. Oh, there's a heck of a lot of Frank Boff, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, Frank Boff, was he was a proper crazy guy wasn't he didn't he have these tabloids say allegedly he had these hooker and cocaine parties didn't he <laughs> that is right <laughs> i mean selena who shared the breakfast couch with him selena scott yeah. selena scott who was dazzlingly beautiful that has to be said uh she insisted that frank was a bit of a nightmare to work with <laughs> uh, so I don't know. You'd have to ask Selena, wouldn't you? She'd know, I think, waking up at three o'clock in the morning with him. She'd know what he'd been up to the night before, probably. And who was the guy who faced off against the Sex Pistols? And oh, Was it Grundy? Was that, that was Bill Grundy, Grundy? But that's, that's before Grundy. our time, isn't it? It is, it is. But these are all of the the figures that fed into the the, the pastiche that Alan Partridge uh, became. Became, yeah. But now I say he's, he's much more nuanced, you know. I, I feel that, in particularly because I mean, a big thing of it is he's, he's kind of like knee-jerk political reactions. I, 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 we see more self-doubt and more genuine genuflection on his part in terms of why he says what he does. So there's, you know, there's a, a greater breadth to the projected internal thought and monologue that you assume that he's having, I think. He's just a bit more than a stand-up persona these days, isn't he? So I, I was genuinely quite pleased with that 
uh, and the show itself, which was well not a pyrotechnical delight, it was, was was a technical delight. I think, particularly some of the set pieces, uh, him in dis, you know just playing Where's Wally, but Where's Alan? I thought that was uh, maybe <laughs> one of the highlights of like the choreographed aspects of the show. <laughs> Did you enjoy it, Richard? Well, I said this at the time, didn't I? I think there is no other comedy character mm. that has endured for so long and is so much his own thing, or his or her own thing, that that could stand up and do that kind of a kind of a piece, you know. He's unique. It's a unique character. And I'm sure there have been times when Steve Coogan's thoroughly sick of doing him. But yeah. I think maybe he's got through that now, and I think... It's a unique institution. There's nothing else quite like him, I don't think. So, yeah, I mean, because like now, I mean, we've got Alan making jokes about Pretty Patel and things like this. There's a there's a breadth to his political opinions and, and, and a, a lack of unity that makes him just more real and more human, I think. The fact he has he has some scattershot political ideas that don't necessarily connect with each other, you see. And I thought that was just a more genuine, a more genuine level of character development that you probably need, you know, if you're going to you're going to have these kind of uh, focused one or two hour shows with, with, with Alan Partridge. Anyway, that's a distraction from the Christmas present that you got from Secret Santa. Which was pretty on the inside, unlike pretty. <laughs> who knows I who haven't it's opened from. it yet. It's very pretty on the outside. You it's haven't beautiful. opened it yet. Oh my, no. oh my God. Now, did anybody ever buy the Madonna sex book in 1993? Richard yes, did. Yes, I did. And I opened it. And, yeah. and the present that Richard's given me is wrapped, if anybody bought the Madonna sex book, in a very similar kind of way. <laughs> a, foil, a foil rip-open bag. Vacuum-sealed, yeah. almost yeah. bag, yeah. Like, like, like astronauts would get their food out of. <laughs> it's not the Madonna sex book. I'm sorry oh. to disappoint you. I wonder if, if, do you think that's valuable nowadays? Oh, hell yeah. Really? If it's in the bag, probably. Not if it's out the bag. If like it's sealed, is. yeah. Probably worth quite a lot. Oh well, and if it's not stained, sorry, (laughs) I I said it. I shouldn't have said it. The music poll, separating the first part of the podcast, which is things that are not connected to the movie that we watched in any way, with the second half of the podcast, which is largely. Also not connected to the movie. (laughs) Well, Richard, you didn't tell everybody what what your present was to me. So I'm sorry, we're not getting into the movie until you tell them what it was. Well, you haven't opened it, so I can't tell you. Oh, shit. Okay. All will be revealed, obviously. Okay, let's get on to the movie then. Like Alan Partridge, a very British institution. Obliquely. Paul, where do you think this movie was made? Choose or die. This movie, actually, I've done a bit of my own work. And I'm, oh, tell I'm, not look, I'm not looking down at my notes. I'm looking straight okay. at you. This movie was made in the UK. Yeah, yeah, it was. Choose or Die, a Netflix special. I'm like that kid. I do my homework once and the teacher asks for it, you know. Yeah, it's, it's the only time I've done my homework here. Yeah, it's made in the UK. Sorry, Rich, carry on. It stars Lola Evans and Azza? Azza? Azza Butterfield? I don't know how you say his name. Oh, anyway, I, I'm short-sighted. I, I, I haven't got my glasses on. I thought it said ass Butterfield, but it's obviously not. He starred in Sex Education, which we have mentioned on the podcast before. We mm-hmm. reviewed More than once. Alongside, of course, the guy who we now know is going to be the next Doctor Who. Beauty Ghetto, I think his name is, isn't it? Yeah, but his name is not on the credit list, weirdly. No, 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 no. Don't be confused, Paul. He's not in the film. He's in Sex um, Education. Oh. I was simply saying what Asa Butterfield has been in. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah. Asa Butterfield has been in Sex Education, of course. He's like the, he's like Julie Anderson's little, little son. Yeah, Sex Educator. Alongside, he co-stars with Scooty Getter, who is in Sex oh, Education with him. But they, I, he's, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry. But Scooty is not in Choose or Die. She's not. He, so, he is. A... <laughs> I'll stop interrupting you. I'll try to. Anyway. He is. Yeah. Okay. Choose or die. Now, it wasn't always called this, Richard. Here's the other bit of homework I've done. It used to be called Cursor, spelled C-U-R-S dash R. Take from that what you will. Well, that's the name of the game in the film. It is. Yeah. 
I think Choose or Die is a better name. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an infinitely more merit, meritorious name. Yeah. Okay. So it is really straight to Netflix. It is forty-eight minutes. It is eighty-four minutes long. It was made in the United Kingdom, and it was directed by Toby Meekins. Is there anybody that we should know? If he's somebody of note, I don't see much in his work that we might recognise. He's okay. done some and, shorts. And, uh, and he has some writing credits for this, along with the main writer, I think, who is Simon Allen. Okay. Now, although it's filmed and made in the UK with certainly at least one British actor, it's as if it were in the States, right? They're all speaking... It is in the States, yeah. Yeah. Which is strange, because it does seem to focus around a game, which, as far as I can tell, is is definitely a Spectrum game. It is a Spectrum game, and when you look at the first, first or second scene when the game appears, it's loading with the traditional... Spectrum loading screen, yeah. Spectrum loading screen and spectrum loading noise, let's not forget. If you look down there, it's the Spectrum, like, I think it was called the Spectrum XL. Many of our listeners are about to correct me on this one. No, it's a Spectrum Plus 2 or 2 Plus. Plus 2, yeah, okay. Uh, In fact, I think this is the first Spectrum that was released after Amstrad bought Sinclair. But don't forget, I think I think in the US, the Spectrum was, I think, for its first Christmas or its first, you know, sort of winter run, first buying season, kids' present season run, was marketed by Timex, I think. Can't You're be right. certain about that. I don't think it made a big a big splash in the States, did it? I don't think it was a no. big platform. It was too cheap. It was too cheap. And, of course, it had rubber keyboards. I love that rubber keyboard, though. That was the Spectrum that I had. I know, but when your friend got the VIC-20 and then got the Commodore 64, that keyboard, no, you know, it spanked, no. didn't it? it no, I didn't like it, because oh. normal, like Commodore 64 keyboards look like typewriters in offices. They look like a piece yeah. of business hardware. Yeah, but they also that. had like a shift in control thing where you could like input sprites, like, you know. Do you not remember the graphics you could input automatically? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that you was could nice. do. You could do the suits of cards, couldn't you? Like clubs and hearts and diamonds and stuff on keys, yeah. But you Very could also useful. do like you could also do uh, nine block sprite kind of things, you know. Yeah, I, I, three by three sort of sprite blocks just by pressing one key. I thought that's quite clever. Listen, we better just explain the conceit of this movie quickly. Yeah, yeah, because we're, we're heading into di- di- digressionary comments already. I think we? this most of this podcast is going to be about the spectrum, but anyway. Okay, let's try and stay away from Spectrum because there is a movie to talk about. But let's well, let's 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 hope we can. Richard, so yeah, the you, opening you, scene. You tell us what it's about. The opening scene is setting the scene, and I thought initially this was Ace of Butterfield in the opening scene, but it's not. I got very confused. I had to go back uh-huh. and rewatch it to confirm that I'd got that wrong. But it's a family. There's a young yeah. kid. There's a yes. young guy there. He's typical teenager. He's being really unpleasant actually to his parents. The mum is arguing with him about some unspecified thing. And the dad retreats to his dad den, which is a very darkened room, where apparently he's in love with the 80s and he's got all his retro gear. And he's got this Spectrum Plus 2 Amstrad era Spectrum with the built-in tape deck. And he takes a cassette out. For those who don't realise, in the days of early days of 8-bit era home computing, Almost invariably, in order to load any software at all, you did it from a cassette tape, and you would play the cassette tape, and on the spectrum, a loud noise would occur, which is the data going in, and it would load it from the audio on the cassette tape. So that's what he's doing. He's loading this game. This game, as you say, called Curse Arrow R. Curse R. Yeah, so I thought the opening scene, I, I was getting ready for something that turned out to be quite different from the movie that we were finally presented with. Because, like, the teenage kid and his mum kind of interaction was, I thought, really quite cliched. Uh, but I don't think, looking back, it wasn't really meant to be any part of the movie, was it? It was just no. an intro, you see. Oh, it's so, a tableau. To indicate what the peril is. It is a tableau, yeah. yeah. And what the peril is, is this guy, the dad, is sitting in his darkened room and he's looking at this new game that's loaded up. It's like an adventure game. Mm -hmm. Something is described like like a a guy being in a cave or something. Yes. So this is is echoing of people's 
situation in the game. Okay, That's He's right. in a man cave. He says you are in a cave. And there were some raised eyebrows indicating the direction here, which, again, made me thought this, this, the two things, you know, the kind of like the tableau, the tapestry of mother teenage son interaction. Then the raised eyebrows around this, you're in a man cave and you're playing a game where it says you're in a cave. All these raised eyebrows kind of made me thought this is going to go on like, like a cultural relevance, humorous path, this movie, which it didn't in the end go down. Well, he picks up... Uh, uh, the game says something about there being a chalice there. He picks up his beer bottle and he takes a swig and it actually comes up on the screen saying, you know, you take the chalice. And uh, uh, he puts so it down. Immediately, the, says, the sort of action echo is, is there in the first scene. I didn't yeah. realise that. Uh, something creepy is going on. He puts it down and it says the chalice is empty and he looks at the bottle and it's empty. Uh, and then a thing comes up, a prompt comes up saying her ears or his tongue, question mark. Wow. And then it says, choose or die. Mm. The name of the movie now, is right there at the beginning. I, I thought the evocation of mid-80s adventure games was really quite strong. Obviously, it was graphically, I think, in many ways, I, the, you know, the, the cursor graphic, the loading screen, was pretty spot on in, in, in terms of how games appeared. Except and, one big thing. Oh, what? Well, it's a spectrum. We know that it's a spectrum, but it's all in green screen monochrome. Yeah, it's like a Dragon 32, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying... I mean, you could obviously have made a Spectrum look like that if you wanted, I suppose. But I thought it was an unusual choice. Mm. As, I mean, indeed, as using a Spectrum at all for this American-centric piece, or the supposedly set in America piece. Do you think they didn't do their research and just assume that a Spectrum sold in America as they sold in the UK and in Europe? No, I guess it doesn't matter to them. I mean, they don't. there's plenty of things that get wrong about the technology here, isn't there? Mm. Some things they get right, but th- I think they make some big errors that make you realise that it's not really their focus on the script, is it? Did you buy a computer in 1983, 1984, Richard? Oh, yeah, I'll come to that. And it was a Spectrum, obviously. Obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'll come to that because of what happens next. So he emerges from his little room because there's a commotion outside. Has he made the choice at this point? Well, we don't see that he has, but he has. We know that he has later. Gary Newman is playing on the radio. I don't know. Yeah. It seemed to start on its own, that. But anyway, he emerges from his man cave, and his wife and his son are standing there in shock, and she's holding, like, a pair of scissors, and the kid has got blood coming out of his mouth. And we see back at the screen where he was sitting, and he's obviously chosen his tongue. That was his choice, and that's come true in real life. Dun, dun, dun. So now we get cool music and uh, the intro sequence. The music done by Liam Howlett from The Prodigy, actually, did the music. It is? Wow. Yeah. Ah, it's did pretty good. And we see during this, more text has appeared on screen. And I think it was the game telling the guy to distribute the game. And in those days, of course, the way you could distribute a Spectrum game or any... Uh, Commodore 64 game you just copy the cassette of course to a blank cassette and spread it around to your mates and that was the piracy network of its day that was the Napster of its day for video games <laughs> I used to have some tricks oh really we used to go like let's say we were, let's say it got like 78% in Crash Magazine so it's like a decent game but not worth your £6 to go and buy Right, we'd go and buy it from the store therefore justifying the theft of the intellectual property yes go wait, wait, wait. We'll go and buy it for the store you yes. know then make a few copies of it uh-huh. and go and sell those at school for like sell yeah, the price them. yeah the price of the the, the cassette, cassette. It was okay cassette plus you know 15 20 pence or whatever but you could put several games on one cassette paul uh, yeah but that's not how you do business is it oh right <laughs> obviously <laughs> then they're just going to pay for the cassette of 20 20 20 pence more for for several games you know so yeah, so you have to. There has to be some sort of scarcity. It has to be a new game out kind of thing. You have to go down there get the game, and then after we taped it, what we do is we just uh, play the game again through the cassette cassette player without loading it, and just press record sort of halfway through for about a second. Right. Yeah, and then take it back to the shop and say it doesn't work. It doesn't load. And this oh, because you've ruined the game. I see. Yeah, because yeah. you just put like a little half second gap in the recording that he can't really hear. And you must have breaks. covered over the right protect tab on the cassette with I, a bit I of sellotape. I can't remember those details. Actually. Well, that's that's what you had to do with the cassette 
deck mechanism. It was my friend's older brother that actually did the overwriting, uh, the over-recording kind of thing. And we'd take it back and get our money back. And so right. it was like, it was a really good way of doing business. Fraud. Not- yeah, I see. <laughs> Wait, stop. Okay. This was before the adverts came out saying, you know, software piracy is a very bad thing. I mean, to me, I wasn't really into that kind of thing. Like, my no. sort of teenage... Uh, attempts uh, kind of you, you were profiting from it but you were barely involved yeah. I, was, I was like the weak child that went along with it uh, <laughs> I, I actually my job was to sell cassettes once we co- made a few copies of them at school you know? oh yeah and uh, we did really well I can't, I can't remember what it was okay. Laws of Midnight we did really well because uh, people then wanted the map off us when you sold them the map as well because <laughs> of course it comes with a huge amount of documentation you can't really play the game well with, without Lords of Midnight is excellent Really excellent really good game. game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's in many respects a little bit similar to Cursor, the game here. But you, actually, what I like most about not paying for things as a, as, as a very young teenager, apparently <laughs> obvious, yeah. was what I liked most was actually the the arcade games. I particularly liked what was it? Uh, not Asteroids, Galaxy, was it? Would you take your mum's knitting needle and stick it down the coin slot? Right. Okay, that sounds and, safe. Yeah, and just get like twenty pence credits. Because it was quite a simple. Yeah. It was quite a simple mechanism to see the passing of a coin, wasn't it? <laughs> so yeah, we used to do that down at Preston Baths. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Richard. I've really stopped you saying what you wanted to say. So at the start of the movie, we see Kayla, who is played by uh, uh, Lola Evans, cycling through what we know to be London. Supposed to be the US, but actually, mm-hmm. if you know it's London, it's kind of obvious, I think. But she's cycling around. She goes to her boyfriend's house. This is Isaac, played by Asa as a Butterfield. He seems to be some kind of programmer. I don't know, it's not quite clear. He's more of an animator. He's doing something on 3D modeling. Mm-hmm. She's digging through all of his retro gear that he's got knocking around. That's because, as an age group, uh, these two, they are straddling the Gen Z millennial kind of cusp aren't they they're kind of they're kind of very they're quite gen z they're quite into the 80s retro uh, but they're also quite millennial into their somewhat useless defunct technology so it's weird yeah all this technology that we used to have as kids is now like curios for the, <laughs> yeah. for the new generation anyway she finds amongst the pile of junk this game and it's called Cursor. And she reads the blurb, and it says it has a hundred twenty-five thousand pound dollar prize, and it's got a phone number to ring up on and stuff. And they're assuming it's all going to be defunct by now, of course. Well, yeah. The prize must have gone. But she calls the number, and there's a recorded message by Robert England, <laughs> who she doesn't seem to recognise, but presumably no. <laughs> you, you do, Paul. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who is he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Okay, yeah. I, I do. Yeah, naturally. Uh, he's no, no, who is he? He's Freddy Krueger. Yeah, it sounded like Freddy Krueger, actually. <laughs> no, it well, she, did. It did. She didn't know who he was either. I've not watched those movies for a long time, all right? Isaac tries to explain it. To, I don't think I've ever seen them. Isaac tries to explain the concept of Freddy Krueger to her. She doesn't really get it. But they figure out that there might be some easy money to be made trying to win oh, the yeah. prize for this game. If but like that money could still be in the vault. That money, like somebody, some other guy won, you know, managed to, you know, get one of these old games and win the and win the prize. And the money was, you know, the 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 winning code was access to a bank bank account details. Blah 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 blah. Anyway, so they're they're pretty they're pretty fueled up, aren't they, to to to, to go and pursue this this prize? Yeah. She's going to go away and fix computer they can play it on, and then they're going to have a go. But here's a question. Mm. Here's a question. Let's go all the way back now to what's called the armchair quest kind of puzzle game. Yeah. Because do you know where this idea came from, This win this big cash prize for solving these puzzles? Richard, okay, can I just... Let me just interrupt by way of, by way of answering. First of all, like, uh-huh. uh, Pokemon is like the modern physical version of this, yeah? No. Kind of. Okay. No. Okay. Right. No, okay. So before that, about <laughs> 15 years ago, you said, hey, Paul, you know, this is kind of online computer game puzzle quest where you gave me some cards like postcards and there were uh, quizzes on them and you had to go and find something physically like dig it up out of the ground <laughs> is that what you're talking about but it was all it was all administered kind of online kind of thing 
Yeah, those physical puzzle cards. cards. I know what you mean, and that is the ancestor, no, the descendant of these. Of, but the the original of adventure game books. The uh, game book oh. or puzzle book was called Masquerade. Do you remember this? So this is end of the seventies. In fact, what's he called? I'm fascinated. The artist called Kit Williams. Right, right. And one. he did. Well, don't worry. I'll give you a YouTube about it. I'll put it in the show notes. In fact. Kit Williams, he was an artist, he did these intricate, fancy works of art. And he, his yeah. publisher, a book publisher, had asked him to do a collection for a coffee table book. But Kit Williams wasn't keen on that, because he figured, quite rightly, I think, that coffee table art books, you know, people pick them up, they look through quickly, they put them back down, finish the coffee, you know, afternoon tea is finished. So they don't. nobody ever really looks at them. He thought it was a waste of his art to go into that domain. So we came up with an idea that would sort of force people or encourage people to engage with his artwork. And what he came up with was a grand puzzle called Masquerade. So he did a whole series of paintings that was the book, but he also made, because he has these skills, he made a beautiful hair out of gold as a sort of jewellery item. Quite a big thing as well. Uh, I think it was assessed or reckoned to be worth about six, three to six thousand pounds in the end. In some, yesterday's money. Yeah, in the late seventies. Whoa! In the end, Sotheby's sold it in the mid eighties for over thirty thousand pounds. But he encased it in a sort of clay capsule to keep it safe, and then one night he went out and he buried it somewhere in a secret place, and he did it with a witness with him, just one other person, a trusted person in British society at the time. And that was Bamba Gascoigne, who at the time was the quiz master of University Challenge. So only two people in the world knew where the golden hair was buried. And it was Kit Williams and Bamba Gascoigne. And he published this book, and it became an enormous bestseller with the promise that somewhere in the country was this hidden golden hair. All you had to do was read the book decode the pleasant middle-class puzzles that were contained therein, and then go and find the uh, the golden hair. Whoa. Do you not remember this, Paul? Is this not ringing any bells? Because it was the kind of thing that was on the news, possibly on John Craven's news round. I mean, I remember at the time, one, the, the back end of the 70s were that kind of like, Aaron sweater, head out exactly. the side, yeah. lose, lose yourself in kind of like a middle class, but also quite bohemian sense. Yeah. And I do remember that my parents are always going on car treasure hunts. Whatever club we were in, whatever society <laughs> they joined, everybody would roll around looking for clues in their cars, you know, in reference to a map and obviously stop along several pubs along the way. And I think many of the clues were designed to be found in pubs. So I don't want to say anything about drink driving, of which there was a lot. But whatever club I was in, you know, that's what that was our activity. So it was huge at the time, wasn't well, it? This book started a whole series, a publishing phenomena of these armchair puzzles. Although it's fair to say that the original Masquerade dis- caused quite a lot of controversy for two reasons. One, it was really difficult, really difficult. And as a consequence, it led to people going all over the country, often to stately homes and national parks, just digging holes in the ground, (laughs) looking for a fucking golden hair. That is cool. (laughs) It's only worth 3,000 quid, you know, price of a new Granada. Now, I don't know why this hasn't been turned, by the way, into a movie or a major TV series, because... That needs to be a documentary, at least, doesn't it? Because the story goes... uh, What a cultural phenomenon. For instance, Kit Williams had made it too hard, right? He'd put in so many red herrings, it was ridiculous. Like, each picture, which was beautifully painted and very intricate, but also very symbolic, it was quite surreal in a way, but it would be pictures of the English countryside. There was a story about a hare taking this gift from the moon to the sun and losing it on the way and stuff. Oh, wow. Do you know, that's, that's parallels in Chinese, Chinese culture, of course, uh, Mid-autumn festival, where Chinese, the Chinese diaspora like to eat mooncake. Oh, yeah. There's a whole myth around a, a rabbit going to the moon. Like, yeah. space rabbit. It's weird. Anyway, I don't know what, what is it with rabbits in space? Anyway, sorry, you were saying. And there would, there would be an inscription around the edge of the... 
pictures with letters. And there would be all kinds of false trails. There were some letters with that were in different colours, some letters with little barbs on them and various other things. And all these were distractions, is what you're Distractions, saying. mostly. The way you had Hellfire. to do it, which was baffling, was you followed the eye of a character on the depicted in the uh, painting and you followed the line... That's classic medieval stuff, that. ...through the most extended extremity, like the end of their finger, and that would be pointing... At a letter uh, to the main clue or the main letter, and you would do that several times on that picture through several characters' eyes and extremities, and you'd get a bunch of letters that you could that would form a word or part of a or a pentagram, depending. Yeah, depending how much you'd smoked. It was the end of the seventies, and you know, my mohair parents, mohair clad parents. I'm pretty sure, you know, what they got up to in their deep, deep, deep pile carpet, whatever it's called. Oh. You can imagine how this must have been over several years. Lots of people were coming up with these crazy theories and writing to Kit to ask him if they got it right. Uh, obviously not finding the hair because almost universally they didn't get it right. Eventually a team of physicists, yay, physics. I heard about this, go on, continue. They did get... Note to listeners, yes, we've, we've digressed. They, did, they, they know that. But they did get basically the right answer. They went to a place called Ampt Hill, which is somewhere near Hastings on the south coast. They found a park, and I think what they'd figured out is that the shadow of a cenotaph or a cross or some tall object in the park, on a particular time each year, the equinox, fell on a particular point, and you were supposed to dig there, and the the hair would be buried. But Bamber had nicked it. (laughs) No, no. For whatever reason, the physicist didn't find it. But another <laughs> uh, another guy went there, I think the day after, and he saw all of these dug holes and disturbed earth that they'd been digging. Whoa. And that gave him enough of a clue. And I think he then wrote to Kit and said, look, we were digging here, blah, 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 blah. It's right. Maybe giving his idea of the justification for it. I don't know. But... I think by this point, Kit was so fagged off with the whole thing that no one has come up with the idea that even though they hadn't really guessed and they hadn't found the hair, he, he basically gave it away and said, yes, it should be there, blah, 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 on this location. And so this chap was kind of awarded the prize of the hair and dug it up and found it. He actually found it in disturbed earth that the physicist had overturned. Whoa. So either they d- dug in slightly the wrong place or... They had dug it up and put it back again without noticing, maybe because it was a clay wow. thing and it maybe looked like the earth. I don't know. Maybe they were looking for a chest. But this other guy was a real character. He appeared in the media at the time, receiving his gift, in a false moustache with a hat pulled over, wanting to avoid publicity. <laughs> Here's the story. It turns out that he had a business partner who was the boyfriend of, or the friend or something, of the ex-girlfriend of Kit Williams. No way. So there was a sort of back channel. Now, she didn't know where it was, but they picked up enough clues and this physics team gave them enough information to kind of to basically scam it. So they got this really sort of under false pretenses, you might say. They didn't really solve the problem. But what he did with the hair is even more exciting and interesting. Because what he did with the hair is basically this game. He set up um, a software company using the hair as collateral. And he put up a prize of the hair itself, again, as the second prize, as a prize again. And then they created this game on the Spectrum, but also the Dragon 32, the BBC, the Commodore, on everything they could. Which was the same idea. It was a series of puzzles. Except, whereas Kit's book was a beautiful, you know, coffee table (laughs) thing, this game was possibly uh, the worst video game ever made. It was just a series of screens with, like, graphics of trees randomly on it. Sometimes a hair would pop up with the occasional text appearing as sort of verse, as clues. And there was absolutely no way to solve this. What's more... David Lynch would love it. It was more expensive than any other video game at the time. 
you know, it was like a tenner, whereas they were all a fiver or something. So it was a really expensive game. Furthermore, that was part one. You had to buy a second game to get a second set of shitty clues with no gameplay. Let's just say the most charitable you could say about this game is that the puzzle was very difficult or possibly impossible and was just designed to churn money and get money for this company which was giving this prize that it knew it was never going to be giving away. That company eventually went bust. The hair ended up getting uh, auctioned off. It got bought, as I say, for over 30000 I think some guy in Egypt owned it. He returned it to the UK a few years ago, actually, to be reunited with Kit for an anniversary of Masquerade thing. And it was put on display for the public for a bit. Now, that video game idea wasn't new. Because there was another video game, probably several, but there was certainly one that I saw before that. And that was the first video game and the first game on a spectrum that I ever saw. And that happened when I was in primary school, last year in primary school, where our teacher brought in their son's ZX Spectrum. Wow. And they had this game on it, which was this adventure game called Pymania. Now, this was by a proper software company called Automata, who have a claim, I think, to be the first video game company ever in the UK. And all of their games had this Pie Man mascot, who was this pretty grotesque, kind of pink, nosy bonk-style character. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was in all the magazines and stuff. The Pie Mania game was an adventure game with a prize of a golden sundial, which, again, was worth about six grand, made of gold. It was the same idea. You played this game. This really was a game, though. You could play it like an adventure game. You know, you move from location to location. You had objects in your inventory, and you used them and stuff like that. And if you decoded the game, you would work out that the map looked like a horse, and there were other clues that it might be a chalk horse, and then there were other clues to which chalk horse it was. (laughs) And if you went to that chalk horse... On the 22nd of July, which is 22 over 7, which is the approximation of Pi, the Pie Man would meet you there and he would hand over the golden sundial. And a woman actually wow. did win that eventually. So that was a bona fide competition. But that was the first Spectrum game that I ever saw. And I was totally hooked on it because, first of all, it was a video game. Second of all, it was a video game you could chat to, you could type in, and it did stuff, which was mind blowing. And third of all, it was like also in the real world. You know, it represented a real prize somewhere hidden in the real world. It blew my mind, Paul. And I've been hooked on video games ever since, I think. That moment made me a a gamer. So was the game inspired by Kit Williams' Masquerade, also called Masquerade? Yeah, it must have been. Well, inspired by Kit Williams' Masquerade and a whole host of books that came after it that were very similar, I suppose. But what was it called? The game. Which one? Oh, the, the, oh, the, the bad game. With Hair Razor, it was called. Sorry, yeah, Hair Razor. Now, there's a, a talk by Ashens. Do you know Ashens? Yeah, the, I do, yeah. The guy who reviews things on his brown sofa. He's got an amazing talk he did at the Norwich Games Festival all about Hair Razor, the worst game ever made, and Masquerade. Very interesting. I'll post... Uh, I'll post a link to that YouTube. It's really good. Okay, Richard has had a, a significant digression there. So allow me to say one or two things. Okay. One, hair razor, therefore, you're saying about the fact that the, the golden hair seemed to regenerate itself again and again and again. There are parallels to this in this movie, aren't there? In the sense that, you know, people have to copy, make copies of this, of Cursor and the game. Well, it's sort of the whole distribution model way. of this game is terrorizing people until you agree to pirate it and then, you know, yeah. spread copies around. So it uses 8-bit piracy as its main distribution mechanism. We're going to have to cut all of this out, aren't we? Because it's far too long. No. But here's the thing. Here's another thing. So, as I said, the Masquerade book spawned a series of copycats because it was hugely successful, right? It It was a big publishing phenomenon. So they tried to repeat the success of it with lots of different titles. I think they tended subsequently to veer away from the actual going out and digging up gardens and stately homes after that one of them i did and i actually won something from one of these puzzle books not from the book itself there was a promotion about this new book coming out 
that was in one of the Sunday supplement magazines, you know, like Sunday Telegraph or whatever, I don't know, that my parents got. And they'd taken one picture from this book and asked you to do it, as it were. Now, what this book was called, I think, was called The Alphabet or something. And there was 26 pictures, one for every letter of the alphabet. And each page would depict as many objects and words and concepts beginning with that letter as the artist could possibly think of and fit on there. And the job of the whole book was to try and record as many objects as could be depicted in each scene uh, as possible. you know. And if you got them all kind of thing, then you won the prize. Mm. In the magazine promotion, what they'd done is they'd given you the J page to do. And I went through, I spent ages with an encyclopedia and a dictionary looking at this picture and just checking off every J thing that I could see on here. And I submitted it all, and I won a prize. What prize did you win? From the newspaper. The book, of course. (laughs) Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Right, Richard, I think we have to talk about this movie, although I don't really have that much to say about it. Well, listen, Kayla gets this computer working, and she winds up in a cafe. I'm glad you remember this story. I think she's loaded the game cursor onto an emulator so she can put it on a laptop, which is a sensible way of playing your Spectrum games these days. She goes into this diner where it's middle of the night because she works all day cleaning an empty office room in a very liminal space with, with no cubicles or furniture in it. But she winds up in this diner and she opens a laptop and starts playing this game. Ah, yeah. The game goes through its usual introduction and sort of describes where she is. It doesn't call it a diner. Obviously, there's some kind of quasi-medieval reference to it. But it asks her coffee or cake, which is what's on the menu. Mm, She's coffee. The waitress comes over and starts pouring coffee and the game says, say when to stop or something, and she keeps pouring because she hasn't typed anything yet. And the waitress is acting a little bit weird, isn't she? Mm. Once the coffee's poured, the menu changes back to buns and cream cakes and chocolate slices, I think. Then it says, then the game says, take a break, question mark. And at that, the waitress starts smashing glasses continuously, just dropping one after another. Uh, Then uh, there's a choice to clean up, which I think Kayla types in. And when she does that... Well, having said take a break and it being a play on word and smashing glasses, you'd think she wouldn't choose clean up because <laughs> of its of its pejorative associations. But anyway... Because now, chillingly, the waitress kneels down and starts eating the broken glass shards, shard by shard, with blood streaming down her mouth. Horrific. Kayla is asking her to stop, but the waitress can't. Now, which movie was it we saw a couple of weeks ago where... Uh, you don't actually see it, but they're soaring through somebody's arm. Maybe you don't remember. I can't remember. Yes, I do remember that. That was in Prospect, Good. wasn't it? Where the young girl soars in the arm off the Mandalorian. Pedro. That's right. And you mentioned the fact you could never actually see it, but you do hear it. And that was that for me was really hard to take. I didn't really find any of the intentionally gruesome horror in this movie, either particularly gruesome or particularly horrorful, to be honest with you. In this movie, Curse of... In comparison, I think it lacked its presentation lacked a little subtlety and therefore lacked a little impact. Well, they do the same trick, don't they? Because they do an off-screen horror incident. Kayla goes back to her mum. Her mum's needing medicine. Oh, that was good. Uh, I like this bit. There's also a very creepy sort of drug dealer guy called Lance hanging around in their flats. Kayla also explains her weird experience to Isaac, but obviously, I mean, Isaac can't fully understand what she's trying to say. I think. Eventually, though, she goes back to... She's back in the office place, cleaning. A completely empty office space. And That's at right, the yeah. same time... The, the game always ends with see you tomorrow, to carry on, as it were. And at the same time she was in the diner the previous day, a computer screen, the only sort of screen in this whole place, suddenly comes to life on the reception desk or something. She runs over to it. She finds the computer game is active again. Cursor has come on the screen. And now she seems to be guiding a rat in a room. There's some crude graphics on screen. And she's also on her phone to her mum, 
and her mum is yeah. out of her mind with fear because she says there's something in the flat with her. And she puts two and two together and deduces that one of these characters is a mum and she seems to be guiding the rat to try and eat her own mum. And as she's moving That's the rat, right, yeah. she's hearing her mum saying it's at the door, you know, and it's trying to bite its way in. Terrifying, again. And when she gets, eventually, her mum is so terrified of this thing, she goes to the window and jumps off, jumps out to escape the rat, winds up in hospital. And when Kayla eventually goes back to the flat, it's all smashed up and there are hmm. claw marks on the wall and, the, you know, the door's been chewed through and so on. Now, it's not clear at this point if the computer game is preceding reality or reacting to reality or a split second behind or it's all entirely synchronistic, is it? It's kind of left enjoyably hazy for you to try and think think about and work out. She goes back to Isaac and they're going to try and figure this out. right? And this is where a lot of the writing gets a bit... Crappy with the technology, right? Mm. I thought the mum stuff that was that was a good scene. That was like you know really tense. The fact she's not there, all she can see is the game screen. Yeah, uh, it, that worked really well. I thought it worked really well. But when they're trying to unpack this game, oh god, Isaac's going on it's ordinary rapper code. Maybe there's something hidden in the audio. <laughs> so like they play the audio and they got oscilloscopes and shit, and he decodes the audio in a different way. And he gets a bunch of these strange characters, which I thought were some kind of Asian characters, but they're, they're really more kind of runic or demonic. They're a cross between very simple hieroglyphics and runes, I think. And he, he says at one point, even if it's a programming language, it should have, it should have a cursor. It's like they think... So I guess it's a writerly thing, isn't it? They perhaps think cursor is some kind of magic... Like a magic wand in the programming world. <laughs> what is? What was that about? <laughs> because ultimately, they crack the code by finding the cursor, don't they, kind of thing. Do they? I'm not sure I don't they know. do. I'm not sure. At this point, it's time for level three. They do three. find a cursor eventually. It's time to level three to start. And this time, he's describing what? Isaac's actions. Same time every night, two o'clock in the morning. And she winds up in this weird space with mist and stuff. And her brother is there... Her brother, who is dead, I think he drowned. Who she let drown, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think they wind up in this misty space with an empty swimming pool. And at some point, she finds them both lying down, and her choice is help or no help. You know, which one does she help? She chose Isaac because she realises that the image of her, of her brother is just a phantasm. Yeah, she knew he couldn't be real. But oddly, after she's saved Isaac, she then puts her hand over her brother's mouth of a phantasm that is her brother's mouth and suffocates him. I'm not sure why that was necessary. I'm not sure what bit of the script like, called for that bit, but there you go. Just a complicated late adolescent reaction, <laughs> I think. I may have skipped a bit here. I'm not sure I understood this bit. Isaac hacks a phone line. I think it was a phone line you dial ah, on the game. Ah. To now find they got the, they can't, I think they got really far at this point, didn't they? And they got to the bit they work out where... They work out where it is and they know they've Where got 10 hours to get there before the next level of the but, game starts. How did they find this out? By hacking, they said, oh, something's hidden in the phone line. Do you know how people used to... Oh, sorry. Yeah, they talked about freaking. They talked about phone They line talked about hacking. freaking. Yeah. And they said, you know, maybe when we dial the numbers, we'll get the address of the place. And they do a similar thing to what they did with the loading sounds. <laughs> And get a sound out of the phone lines that tells them the address of the P.O. box or wherever it is that they need to go to find it. Some magic happens, that's right. <laughs> it's deeply, deeply naff, isn't it? <laughs> I can't even explain it. I can't even begin to explain it. Somehow they extract the address information from the dialing tones because he thought of freaking in the 1980s. There we go. Freaking, which was the practice of using, I think, a whistle found in a to imitate box, dial tones. To imitate yeah. dial tones, yeah. So they find themselves in, in an industrial park and there's some kind of door they have to get through. Gotta find something to bust this open. And then Kayla just flings herself out the door and it opens. <laughs> and they, they go to this desk and they find an old open reel tape deck and a phone. It's in the middle of this really run-down place, isn't it? It's like an escape room but with fewer clues. <laughs> yeah. What they do is they follow the cables that these things are plugged into and they find another room with artefacts related to the game. They find a video which explains tests being run by this programmer guy who's found all of these symbols 
the claim is that they somehow program reality or something. And there's a scene where he stabs his own arm and gets a cut in it. And then he programs something that makes the test subject in a room playing this game with these symbols eat his own arm. And while the test subject is eating his own arm, the programmer's wound on his arm heals. Yeah. So now quite a lot of ideas going on here. <laughs> yeah. All at the same I think time. We've moved from kind of we've moved moved from technological Deus Ex Machina to to wild paranormal sort of occult paranormal symbols. synchronistic Necro- weirdness. Necromancy. Yeah, with necromancy thrown in, just so fucking weird, you know. But we're still using computers to solve it all, so well done. Level four begins. I think it's in this place, isn't it? Isaac mm-hmm. is in a video now in the game. It's like a screen appears between him and Kayla. Like it's a, he's on TV. And now she has to choose rewind or forward oh, God. on Isaac. And she chooses one of them. And he starts vomiting VHS tape out of his mouth <laughs> continuously. Is that is it? Is it spool rewinding or fast forwarding? We're not sure. Not sure. But it comes out of his mouth. I think she might change her mind halfway through. A nice effect, I thought. This is a nice try, but it wasn't in the end spectacular, interesting, or scary. Proves to be the death of Isaac. But yeah, you're right. It's not sold as scary enough. It was actually kind of a little bit cringy, humorous, wasn't it? What, it was funny, yeah. yeah. But he dies. She cradles him in his in her arms as he's dying and although she's been a kind of not really a girlfriend all throughout it's obvious yeah. at this point that you know that she really they have feelings on the screen meanwhile she is worthy she's beaten that level by killing a boyfriend and next is the boss level <laughs> and she's given the coordinates 44.02 I don't know whether you know it's something about these coordinates Paul no 44 you put them in GeoGuessr well no if you think about it it's obvious. It, I mean, you can see from this. 44.02, obviously that's 44 north, degrees north. Yeah. 74, if that was east normally, as it were, that would be, you know, somewhere in Europe, wouldn't it? It would be east of the Greenwich Meridian. But but they're in the US. Maybe it's all like Azerbaijan, I think. So it must have been 74 west. So you yeah. would have had to have said 44 east, 74 west for it to have made sense. Or... 44 minus 74 to put it in the US. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense. Anyway, she somehow manages to put those coordinates into your satellite nav, which is difficult to do. I don't think you've ever tried putting raw coordinates into a sat nav. It's not really what they're geared up to do. But there you go. She drives there. (laughs) She finds a fancy house. Nice bit of architecture. Rather like the house in the first... uh, in the first scene as well, actually. No, there's lots of expensive like Henry Miller-type kind of uh, statues in the garden. It's very modern. There's loads it's of all shelves very... on poles and stuff like IKEA furniture. Yeah, I, it's sort of 80s throwbacks, but really classy 80s throwbacks. And there's a weird family sitting at their dining table reciting words. An older man, a woman, and a lad whose eye and mouth have been taped over with a pick of an eye <laughs> and a mouth. The picture, yeah, which appears to have been coloured in by a five-year-old on papier-mâché. So apparently the man is a collector, and he picked up the game Cursor R in a clearance site. And the game must have terrorised his fam- him and his family, but promised to leave him alone after two levels if he made copies of the game copies. and distributed them. And the woman's disfigured. I think one of side of her face is disfig- disfigured. Presumably, the guy. Presumably from the game. Yeah. And I imagine the guy hasn't got an eye or um, a mouth, presumably. Presumably from the game. Presumably. And it turns out in the boss level, when she gets hurt, he feels it. And when yeah. he gets hurt, she feels it. Which is. What's all that again, about? Again, quite. It's, it's a clever idea that they're layering on top of all the other clever ideas. But completely different to the idea of like, I. I get healed when you... Yeah. yeah. So then a, a weird fight ensues where they're both trying to hurt themselves. Themselves. He yeah. pulls out a... That was quite good, actually. He pulls out a, a, a gun and they're shooting one another and getting it all wrong. And, and then the, I think the kid winds up with the gun and goes to shoot her and he's going, don't shoot her, shoot me. And he's <laughs> very confused. 
he then pulls out a knife and is stabbing himself and I think he goes to cut his throat while Kayla... He succeeds, I think. He does succeed. Meanwhile, Kayla is manhandling an enormous uh, sculpture, fancy... I thought going to say dildo at that point. <laughs> sculpture in the garden over to the pool in order to try and drown herself. <laughs> she gets her throat cut while doing this and it looks like it's all over for her, but she falls into the pool with the sculpture and it lands on her. And obviously... She's not quite dead yet, so he's drowning now and water is coming out of his mouth. Apparently, she's won. And the woman, his wife, the guy's wife, pulls Kayla out of the pool. At the end of it all, we see her programming with these symbolic symbols on her keyboard. In fact, she's got a keyboard of those symbolic symbols, which doesn't sound very practical. Yes, she has. And she is programming a, a choice game for Lance... The nasty drug dealer guy in their flats. This is after, of course, all her friends had made a recovery because of the weird karma that is outside the boss level where it's like she got damaged and now as a result everybody that she knows gets better. So her mum and her now boyfriend and everybody else have made a miraculous what? recovery. Is that right? I don't remember that. Yeah. Mum's okay. A mum was okay. Feels okay. Her, I think yeah. everyone else was dead, Paul, wasn't it? No. Oh, wow. Oh, it was cheerier than I thought then. Oh. Well, that's nice. Because of this thing where, because of the curse, you know, yeah. you're cursed to have oh, this right. thing, but oh, when bad that, things happen to other people, you get better. La- Maybe that's why she's killing Lance. So that's she why can... she's killing Lance, so more people can become better again. Well, I know that he, she makes Lance go to a sink, and of course... If you're a drug dealer, what you do in your kitchen sink is you put all your syringes in there, pointing upwards, don't you? All your syringes, because that's what yeah. drug dealers have in their in their sinks. And bloody shrimp syringes too. Yeah, and she makes him ram his head down onto the syringes. Later, when the police find him, he's lying in the kitchen with all all his syringes in his face. I'm not entirely sure that would have killed him unless there was drugs in the syringe. Anyway. It, apparently this heals her. I don't remember it healing her dead boyfriend, but there we go. And then at the end, she gets a call from the game designer, who's at Kismet, which yeah. is the company she's been working for in these empty offices. Oh, all God, it's too much, isn't it, Paul? They tried to do too much. The three, the three like major, you know, sort of computer magic things that happen in the game. I hurt my. I, I start to hurt myself, like I cut my arm. That causes somebody else to really lay into themselves, yeah? Well, well hang on, okay. hang on. Let's just go through them. There's three things. There's the paranormal computer game that reacts with to and with the real world. Yeah, is it before or after? We don't know. Synchronistic, synchronistic kind of dual realities. Would that be fair? Yeah. Description. Then number two is... Uh, I... Damage myself slightly, that causes somebody else to go apeshit and start chewing themselves to bits. Yeah? That's, I hurt the other harms, but in the same direction. I hurt myself, the other person harms themselves, but even more. Then the third one is, I attempt to hurt myself, I don't get hurt, the other person gets hurt. That's completely different, yeah? And the fourth one is, once you've won the game, is this kind of karmic do-goodery, where you carry the curse, and the more evil you plan towards evil people that happens to them, the more recovery you get in the people that you care for. So there's four levels of just silliness here. And, no, you're forgetting there's a fifth, which is oh, God. there's this mysterious like um, conspiracy-style kismet organisation behind it all somehow. That, you know, been employing her in this empty office. <sighs> and uh, was also- Deep sigh. And then there's the idea that this game propagates virally, like the ring, the vi- and the video in the ring. And Instead stuff. of ha- people having to distribute it like they're asked to, so <laughs> why are you asking people to distribute it? You know, to make copies. Isn't this strange? Do you know? I I want to like this film though. I really like. There is something fresh about it. Mm. It wasn't well received. It wasn't well received by the critics or by you know, by Metacritic reviews from from audiences. I- Fairly bad reviews. We should just do scores then, shouldn't we? We should just let's just score this thing. Okay, away we go. Well, let's start with acting. Acting was good. Um, I mean, there wasn't a lot to act. Let's be honest. It's it's fifteen minutes of action, (laughs) twenty minutes of moping in 
post-industrial loft loft spaces for the young in in deserted industrial areas and that's it really and a bit of kind of uh we are the chosen ones mask wearing meeting at dining tables weirdness you know and so there's not a lot demanded of the actors but they do deliver uh quite perfunctorily so i'm gonna give it a 6.5 for acting uh lola playing kayla is good uh and asa is He's just so charming, isn't he? He's really good. They're, in they're convincing. Yeah, they're all convincing. It's not much fun, this movie, for either actor, is it, really? There's not there's not much lightheartedness in it, and they don't really get much of a romance going on. No. There isn't much lateral movement in the in the characters or personality. Very little development at all. And the so. moment where Isaac dies, I don't think it's his fault, but it's very difficult to sell that scene seriously. <laughs> I mean, he's essentially acting like a video recorder. I mean... <laughs> So, spooling out tape. Okay, so what are you scoring it, Rich? I'll give it a seven for acting. Ah. Okay, on to the plot. What did you do? It? I mean, what was your score? I gave it 6.5. Okay, okay. On to the plot. Like, like Richard says, very, very ambitious in terms of trying to throw these big ideas. Look, if you're, a new, if you're a new director, a new writer and stuff, not that you've never done anything before, you've done some shorts, but this is going to be a, a film on Netflix, going to be promoted. Netflix is the new place where you get your stuff promoted. You know, it's where Squid Games premiered. It's a big opportunity, right? I guess the temptation is to make sure you do stuff and you do enough. You want to be the next Christopher Nolan. You know, you, you need to throw some high-concept ideas in there, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're not experienced well, it, it, enough to know when you've overdone it, this may be where you end up. Or to do your research. You know? <laughs> I mean, I love the inclusion of the Spectrum stuff. And I love the inclusion of the old adventure puzzle games and the prizes and stuff. That's nice. There's definitely a movie in that, right? Just not this movie. Yeah, it doesn't need all of the other gubbins on top of it. As I say, I, I, I really want to like this movie. It's got a lot that ticks my boxes, you know. Like, on paper, it sounds as though it should be good. You know, good cast and interesting ideas. But it doesn't quite click. It's an idea that isn't as strong as Jim Carrey's The Mask done in multiple ways because it's not strong and therefore comes out even weaker than it would have been, I think, you know. They should have cut down two or three of the ideas in here, minimum, and uh, and they would have had a much stronger piece, right? Plot-wise, not great. It, and uh, it lost its way about 30 or 40 minutes in. There were some good moments of action in there. I guess we'll have to score it in a separate area. But generally, the plot didn't convince. It, it didn't run at the right pace. And there was... There was never really any sense that we didn't know that they were moving through levels in a computer game and they were going to face some obstacles and going to overcome them. I mean, I, I don't really see what this is, where the suspense or if the you know the the fright of the horror came from. So plot wise, I'm going to have to score it quite a lowly five. I'm afraid. Yeah, I think a five is a fair score for this. Uh, Over ambitious would be my watchword. As if we were doing it by our watchwords. What about tech and science? Tech and science, okay. So it has to be marked up for doing spectrum-y stuff and yeah. retro, retro tech. Has to be marked down for getting some essential programming things wrong. Hmm. I'm <laughs> going to give it a five again here. The power of the hieroglyphic cursor, that was just weird, as you pointed out. The loading screen stuff was great. I'll accept the fact that they might have hidden some high-frequency sounds within the loading screen. Well, I'm not sure cassette goes much beyond 16,000 hertz. And then you might be able to filter out some special messages. Or maybe they did some sort of transform where if you, if you, you know, applied, applied, a, applied a formula to it, you get something back. Paul, uh, what are you, you doing? Could, you know, You're not supposed to be figuring out how you can actually do this stuff, right? I know, but, you know, I, I'm trying to get the benefit of doubt for that one because I quite like the idea of, you know, getting back to the cipher or whatever using some sort of spectral analysis of the sound. It's not a bad idea, but they tr then they did it again, didn't they, in finding the address, which was just overkill. <laughs> I'd like the general tech atmosphere of several of the locations, and, of course, the retro tech was in there, I thought was relatively well dated by their props department. So uh, in terms of computing and tech and science, I'm going to score it a seven, I think. Oh, that's pretty good. It's a yeah. horror movie, though, Paul. We should certainly do a fright score. Can we play with action and fright? What was your score for tech, by the way? Five. Oh. Okay, fright and action. Is that okay? Can we put them together? Yes. 
Action was good, I thought, maybe for the first 25-30 minutes, quite sustained. Some horror when her mum kind of gets eaten by a large electronic, a large electronic rat sprite. Yeah, but uh, okay. yeah, we don't see. We don't that. see it, but yeah. it's terrifying. It is. Terrifying. I thought that was the scariest bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but as you say, like you know, the darkly shot cassette tape spooling out of his mouth and supposed to look oh. like blood, but didn't. Just look silly. Oh, and d- you know, we're missing another big concept that they had in this movie, which is what this this other subplot about losing a brother, drowning in the pool. And that somehow being important. God. Again, that it's yet another thing, oh. isn't it? Yeah, another. Too much sort of interconnectedness here, isn't there? Too much, too much illusion going on in this movie to make sense. We are drowning. Yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> Action horror worked for a time and then stopped working quite noticeably, I think. And this, this kind of, this, this movie got a puncture and just ran flat. The climax sequences long. are pretty good, though. You know, the big, the big showdown the in the final fight. Boss yeah, level, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. It redeemed itself there. However, I didn't think it was a convincing boss level. Who is this collector? He's got nothing to do with the company. He's just one of the guys that happened to pick up the game and need to pass it on to get rid of the curse. So, all in all, the action curse. was better than the frights. Cursor. Oh, wow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, in all in all, for me, I thought the action was better than the frights. It's going to have to be a 4.5 for me. Uh, you know, I think, I think I'll go 6 for this. I think mm. it's, you know, it's got some creepy bits. I think an overall score then, Paul. It's time for an overall score. An overall score from me, I was thinking this is not going to hit five, you know, when I was halfway through it. But actually, looking back now, it, it is better than the reviews. You know, it scores lowly 30, 40, 50 percent. That's too harsh. Reviews. That's too harsh. It is too harsh. It, it, I, I thinking... it hangs together, tries to do yeah. too much. It's got some nostalgia things. It tugs on some of those. Old... Maybe if you're not into spectrums, you never had one. Maybe it, it leaves you cold. Maybe Americans don't get it. I don't know. But it's not that bad. It isn't that bad. So I scored it at 6.5 in the end, which I was surprised by. I surprised myself with that score. Yeah. Rich, how about you? It's a recommend, but, you know, don't don't stress yourself trying to see it. I mean, it's free don't on cancel Netflix. cancel any plans for this. Uh, assuming you're maintaining your Netflix subscription, which many aren't, I suppose, then why not watch this? It's not going to terrify you. It's kind of... Kind of cheesy, but you know, you might have some fun, so I'll give it a seven. Whoa, strong praise indeed. That's a definite recommend from Richard, right? Richard, so next week's movie, can I say that I've chosen it, Richard? Is that okay? Paul, yeah, the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, listen, every time we try and choose live on air, we choose it a Gaspar No film that's impossible to see of one kind or another. We've done that once We've or twice, twice now, two or three weeks. It's absolutely, it's a sh- I'm, I'm ashamed. <laughs> It's because we record this late at night, and so we say, "Yeah, I'll check out if that's available." You know, and then we go to bed instead. So I think, and then forget about it in the morning. But anyway, the game you we were talking about, Masquerade, which was the coffee table, no, the replacement for coffee table art, adventure, find a golden hair thing. Okay, you were saying it was terribly, terribly complicated, and a game that became too complicated for its own good and couldn't be finished. This has real parallels with next week's movie, does it not? It does. And we've chosen Dave Made a Maze. Which is available. Dave Made a Maze. It's available on Amazon Prime. Free of charge to, to people who have subscribed to Amazon Prime. Which isn't free, really, is it? Until the next time, when we'll be watching Dave Made a Maze, it's goodbye from me. And it's ciao for now from me. See you on the next one. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.